Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Les Paul. Red Hot Red. Or Rhubarb Red, depending on who you ask. Godfather of the American Recording Studio. Inventor of the Gibson Les Paul. A man who started his career as a fast-picking guitar virtuoso and ended it as one of the biggest innovators in music history. He first established himself as a mesmerizing guitarist, then shifted to creating guitars for the musicians who defined rock and roll and all its rowdy offshoots. There is no career in American music history as broad as his. But this is not about Les Paul. This is about Mary Ford, a woman who carved out a space for herself in the testosterone adult days of pre-Tammy Wynette country music. A woman who was one half of a best-selling duo with Les Paul. A necessary half, considering that Les only started logging major hits once Mary was by his side, even though she rarely received the proper credit. This story is about a girl.
Mary Ford had to be careful. Think twice about where she went and who went with her. Her mother wondered that the devil had many hiding places. She told Mary and her six siblings everything they needed to know about the evils of the world. And there was plenty of evil lurking in Pasadena that could lead a devout Protestant family into temptation, especially at the theater. The theater was not a good place to be. The theater was dark, ideal for whispers, gossip, worse, necking. The entertainment on those mighty high stages couldn't be trusted. The theater was not a godly place. In fact, Mary's mother told her, the devil is in the theater. If Mary wanted to hear music, she had to do it the proper way. So Mary had two choices. She could play the family guitar at home, or she could turn on the radio. Maybe she could even do both. Mary's fingers slid up and down the frets effortlessly. She tilted her acoustic guitar into an awkward position so her nine-person family could better fit in the studio at KPAS, Pasadena's first Christian radio station. Her mother played the organ. Other siblings played lap steel and a bass fiddle. The youngest children of the bunch crowded together to form a choir of angelic voices. Mary's father did the most important task of all. He preached the gospel. The country had just entered World War II. Americans needed hope, morale, guidance. That's what Mary's family strived to provide on their radio show. She squirmed uncomfortably in the corner of the studio. Her eyes followed her younger brother Bob as he dragged a chair over to the microphone so he could stand on it to sing, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. Mary sighed in her corner. Mary did want to be a sunbeam, just not for Jesus. She could see herself on stage, sparkling with sequins, radiating with poise, beaming down at a rapt crowd. You could even call her a sunshine girl. Mary Ford went by different names for different parts of her career. At home and on KPAS, she was just plain old Iris Summers, one of seven children born to a Nazarene minister. The upside of growing up in a strict religious household was the constant presence of music in her life. The downside was that it was gospel music, and only gospel music. But gospel music was as good a place as any for Mary to begin her decades-long career. Genre didn't matter to seven-year-old Mary when she learned her first chords on the acoustic guitar. From that moment on, she had no pause button. If someone wanted Mary to stop playing, they'd have to pry the guitar from her hands themselves. Her brother Fletcher hid his own guitar on the highest shelves of the closet so little Mary would keep her hands off it. But somehow she pulled it down every single time. Mary had more notes inside her than she knew what to do with. She needed an outlet. And since the devil was in the theater, Mary and her friend Millie performed for God in local churches instead. By the time she was in high school, music was Mary's new religion. And music belonged in the theater. She and Millie cut class and cozied up right next to Old Scratch when they performed in between movies at the local cinema. 
She never finished high school. Mary blew off that obligation. But another social obligation lingered in the background. In the early 1940s, young women got married as soon as possible. It was just what you did. And Millie just so happened to have an older brother named Marvin. Marvin was musical, just like his sister. Like most of the men in town, he had eyes for Mary. In 1941, that was all you needed to get married. But it wasn't enough to stay married, not even for a year. Marvin confessed he wanted Mary to retire from the stage. Mary confessed right back that if that was the case, she wanted a divorce. She was married at 17, separated at 18. That was the end of Iris Summers, the end of a man meddling with her career. It was time for a new era, a spring for Colleen Summers, Mary's new stage name. Colleen Summers was ready to shine. The country western scene in California could use a little bit of her light. Amidst the chaos of her unsuccessful marriage, Mary met a well-connected singer named Cliffy Stone, the king of the current cowboy craze. In the 40s, so-called hillbilly music was hot. Westerns and musicals launched country music to a new commercial peak. Cliffy Stone lassoed the genre on his KXLA radio show, Dinner Bell Roundup. It wasn't long before he invited Mary, a.k.a. Colleen Summers, to help him wrangle some rowdy country tunes on air. Mary's days of singing gospel were gone. The public was clamoring for country music now. She needed to buckle down if she wanted her future to be bright. Mary enlisted two more women to form a trio named Colleen Summers and the Sunshine Girls. Listeners couldn't see Mary, but they heard her radiant grin leak through their speakers. She brought the fresh breeze of summer with her whenever she strummed or sang. Soon after becoming a staple of the country music scene in California, she was performing on KNX's Hollywood Barn Dance. Hollywood Barn Dance was right up there with broadcasts from the Grand Ole Opry and Saturday Night Barn Dance in Chicago. Legend-tier accolades in the country-western world. The musicians on those programs kicked up dirt with their bands live on air, which translated to hit records down the road. Mary was ready to wander down that same country road to the recording studio and kick up some dirt with a new musical partner. Someone who was more her speed. Someone who wouldn't slow her down. Mary sank her foot into the gas pedal. Her 1940 Plymouth zipped through Los Angeles. She had his address memorized. She repeated it in her head right along to the beat of her skittering heart. 1514 North Curson Avenue, 1514 North Curson Avenue, 1514 North Curson Avenue. Mary was gussied up for an audition that afternoon. The wind from an open window tossed around the blonde hair brushing against the nape of her neck. Her pristine white fringed boots revealed her country roots. On the radio, you didn't have to dress to impress. Radio auditions were another story especially auditions for Les Paul. Mary's heart skipped a beat at the thought. Les Paul. 
the man of 1,000 nicknames, Rhubarb Red, Red Hot Red, Les Paul was one of the greatest guitarists to ever walk this earth in cowboy boots. The single greatest guitarist, if you asked Mary. He performed everything with everyone. Hillbilly songs like the ones Mary, a.k.a. Colleen Summers, sang. Straight Up Jazz with Nat King Cole. Easy Listening Pop with Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. He was a shapeshifter. And right now, Les Paul needed a vocalist to join him for his Rhubarb Red radio show, broadcast on NBC. A lady, specifically. And everyone knew Colleen Summers reigned the country scene all year long. Mary pulled up to the address and nudged her sunglasses up the bridge of her nose. She approached a gardener toiling behind a lawnmower and asked him where to find Liz Paul. Walk to the end of the driveway there and into the garage, he told Mary. He'll be there in a minute. Mary did as she was told. She lingered in the stuffy garage until the same man strolled in a few minutes later, dripping with even more dirt and sweat. You're Les Paul, she asked. The contrast between the two musicians was comical. Colleen, in a summery southern outfit. Les, sweating through a dingy plaid shirt and unlaced army boots. This was not what Mary was expecting from her idol. But Mary was exactly what Les expected. Les hired Mary to sing on his radio show. Under one condition, she had to ditch her stage name. The name recognition of Colleen Summers carried the connotation of country music. Les didn't do that hillbilly shtick anymore. Les insisted she start over, as Mary Ford this time. The name was Les's invention. The ring of Mary Ford was 0% country, yet 100% American. It was 1945, and Les had found a new singer for his radio show. Before long, he realized he had found a new wife and recording partner, too. Which would have been great if Les didn't already have a wife at home. Les's marriage to a woman named Virginia Webb was already in tatters before Mary sauntered into his garage. The more time Mary and Les spent together, well... It didn't help the marriage. Les adored Mary as a musician. He drank in the sweetness of her harmonies, the power behind her plucky guitar skills. Les loved this 21-year-old blonde beauty with the round cheeks that blushed so easily. She was his beloved sunbeam. He saw a partner in Mary, in more ways than one. Mary took a little more convincing. She had been caught between a husband and a wife once before. Foy Willing, from the country group The Riders of the Purple Sage, caught her eye when she was performing on Hollywood Barn Dance. That ended in hillbilly heartbreak when, instead of riding off into the sunset with Mary, Foy Willing stuck by his wife. Les and Mary remained in romantic limbo for years. Some nights they were open about their love, like when Mary would visit Les when he performed at Club Rounders. Other days, they denied their feelings, traveling separately to squash any scandalous whispers. When Virginia packed her bags for Chicago in 1948, 
she solved their not-so-secret problem overnight. No more hiding. Les and Mary were ready to step away from radio performances and into real life. It was time to hit the road, this time as the Les Paul Trio, featuring a new member, Miss Mary Ford. The couple sped through states and lived in second-rate motels. Their pace was frenetic. So was their relationship. Anything personal needed to be squeezed into the couple's schedule. That included their wedding. On a blustery afternoon in December of 1949, Mary and Les exchanged spur-of-the-moment vows at a Milwaukee courthouse. No family, two friends, After the 15-minute ceremony, Mary pulled the white flower from her hair. Les traded his suit for show clothes. They didn't have time to celebrate. They had a show to perform and an audience to impress, and many more shows and audiences to come after that. A honeymoon was out of the question. We're not going to take a vacation, Les told a local reporter. He meant it. Sweat dripped down Mary's fingers. Her hands slipped up and down the neck of her acoustic guitar. She didn't know what take this was. It almost didn't matter at this point. Les wouldn't rest until he was fully satisfied with their recording. And that meant every single step of the recording, including all 12 overdubs. Heat radiated off the walls of the couple's new Jackson Heights apartment. It was 107 degrees, a real scorcher. Twice the scorcher if you had a dingy apartment with no breeze passing through. The humidity rose from the sticky New York asphalt and up to the couple's narrow living arrangements. Their new home above a butcher shop in Queens made their banged up quarters from past tours look luxurious. There'd been no electricity at first. Les and Mary had to burn candles when they burned the midnight oil for the first few evenings in their new home. There was no phone either. Unpacked boxes were scattered around the $40 a month apartment. Les insisted upon bringing his treasured recording equipment on their move to America's new capital of entertainment. The clutter shrank the space even more and limited the airflow. It was a wonder that Mary didn't choke on the humidity. It was a wonder that she could still sing at all. But if Les could arrange a jazz standard in his head, right then and there, then Mary could push through the feverish conditions too. Les was hell-bent on adding How High the Moon to the couple's catalog. His time performing in jazz circles turned him on to the song, which was first made a hit by Benny Goodman and his orchestra. Les and Mary wanted to immortalize the tune on wax, their way, the modern way. Despite the sweltering haze that permeated their apartment, Les dreamed up counter melodies and electric guitar and bass lines to rejuvenate their rendition. But it was Mary's rhythm guitar that became the core of the track. Not that anyone would ever know. Mary never got credit for her solid strumming on the song. Les wouldn't allow it. He called it quits around 5 a.m. on the East Coast, 2 a.m. in West Coast time. Les dialed his label, Capitol Records, anyways. 
Capital was unimpressed. The label already had 23 versions of How High the Moon in their vaults. They didn't feel the need to distribute another. Capital had no cause to take any risks on Les and Mary, who had failed to produce a true hit for the label. In 1949, Les roped Mary into his recording process with Capital. After his own handful of popular discs, he wanted to work with a fresh new voice. He supposedly considered some of the biggest names in pop at the time. Doris Day, Rosemary Clooney, Kay Starr. But none of those women compelled Les like Mary did. He wanted to help his new wife branch out beyond her hillbilly roots. In modern terms, Les Paul and Mary Ford's debut effort, Until I Hold You Again, flopped. DJs didn't play it. The public didn't buy it. And while the general population loved Les Paul and Mary Ford on the road, that didn't always translate to love in the record store. The label waited until March of 1951 to release How High the Moon, only after Les and Mary proved they could produce records worthy of the Billboard charts. After a handful of records made a minor splash, the label finally relented. How High the Moon reached for the stars and rocketed the couple to instant fame. Capital's reluctant gamble paid off tenfold. The song spent 25 weeks on the Billboard charts. Nine of those weeks were at the number one spot. The ubiquitous nature of How High the Moon meant equally sky-high record sales for Capital. It would take the hysteria of Beatlemania to top Les and Mary's sales statistics with the label. As How High the Moon defended its spot on the charts, Les and Mary spent the spring of 1951 shaking hands and strumming chords for over 1,500 disc dealers and DJs across the country. Fans were requesting How High the Moon more than any other song on the radio by May. And that wasn't just in America. Les and Mary boasted a budding fan base in England, too. The couple started counting their international hits along with those at home. The success of songs like Josephine, Just One More Chance, and I Wish I Had Never Seen the Sunrise pushed the couple's record sales over six million units. And that was for 1901 alone, roughly 100 times more than their record sales in 1950. Les and Mary even became the first act to simultaneously hold four spots on Billboard's top-selling pop singles chart. Capital counted their cash. They were impressed, but only with Les. They could take or leave Mary. Even though it was Mary's rich voice that listeners played on repeat, her flair that elevated Les's fancy fretwork her rhythm guitar that Les used to build How High the Moon, which she still didn't have credit for. In fact, Les never gave her public credit for playing guitar on any of their joint recordings. This cascade of back-to-back hits began when Mary entered the picture, likely because Mary entered the picture. Capital wouldn't hear it. Despite the couple's mounting success, the label was very much against signing Mary. 
but if Ledge could persuade Capitol to release a new version of an 11-year-old jazz standard, he could convince them of anything. Mary signed a deal with the label in July of 1951. Les was out the door and ready to tour before the ink on her contract could dry. Their hectic lifestyle got an upgrade. The couple's touring schedule took them everywhere from Japan to South America. Even the London Palladium, where they performed in front of Queen Elizabeth. Les and Mary raked in ticket sales but paid a hefty price for their far-reaching success. They got roughly four hours of shut-eye in between every show. Five or six hours if they were lucky. Any recuperation time between bed and backstage was spent preening themselves for performances. On programs like What's My Line and I've Got a Secret, fuzzy TV screens distorted the sharp details of their act. Live performances were the closest and clearest glimpse most fans ever got of the couple. Since Mary never got proper credit for her picking and plucking, it was often their fans' first time seeing her with a guitar, strumming right next to Les, who most people assumed did all the instrumental work. One polished part of their act involved the couple exchanging advanced guitar solos. By the time Mary wowed the crowd, Les would inevitably pull the plug from her electric guitar or bat her hand away from the strings playing the role of a poor loser. It was all pre-planned, just a joke for the gig. But it was a joke that downplayed Mary's abilities yet again. Mary Ford could keep up with Les Paul, the performer. She could keep up with Les Paul, the recording artist. She made that much clear. But she couldn't keep up with Les Paul, the madman who worked 18 to 20 hours every day. Talent couldn't overpower how tired she was. Mary needed to change her nutritional input if her musical output had to stay the same. She tweaked her diet first. Mary began wolfing down high-calorie, low-nutrient foods, chased with liver tablets, B1 pills, and iron supplements. But the pills couldn't prop her up enough. Not to Les's level. So Mary turned to vodka. If it didn't give her energy, then it at least numbed her to the breakneck speeds of the couple's schedule. Asking Les to slow down wasn't an option. First of all, it wasn't something her husband would ever entertain. More importantly, it seemed ludicrous to stop now, as their locomotive of fame chugged to the top of the charts time and time again. In 1953, Les and Mary's rendition of I'm Sitting on Top of the World was their 13th consecutive song to sell over 500,000 copies. That's 13 hits between 1953 and their humble How High the Moon recording from March of 1951. The couple churned out another heavy hitter with Vaya Con Dios, which shot to number one on the Billboard charts. Competitors practically had to pry the song from the airwaves, Vaya Con Dios camped out on the charts for 15 months and pushed the couple's worldwide record sales over the 15 million mark. In between their label's constant efforts to squeeze more hit songs out of the couple, Les and Mary signed a contract with Listerine to produce the Les Paul and Mary Ford show. The $2 million deal required the duo to make five-minute musical films. 
36 five-minute musical films total to be completed in 15 weeks' time. In between, Les juggled a contract with Gibson, who approached him to endorse their solid-body guitars years after he independently built a prototype. Yet nothing could slow Les Paul down. Not overcommitting himself. Not burnout. Not even the death of a child. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It should have been a quiet time, a contemplative period full of friends and loved ones, comfort food, support, rest, hell, maybe even a little prayer. Mary Ford didn't receive any of that. She felt less tugging on her arm. He yanked her through another guitar factory. Mary scanned the room in a daze. The words tumbling from the factory employee's mouth sounded alien. Les and Mary were in Holland now. Or was it Sweden? The couple bounded between countries so quickly. Switzerland, Spain, Germany, back to back to back. The trip overseas was intended to distract them from the devastating loss of their new baby. Les was distracted, all right. Distracted by new toys for his studio, when he should have been consoling his wife over the untouched toys in their nursery. Les and Mary's first child was a blessing for the short time she was with the couple. For Mary, her newborn daughter represented the kind of goal she couldn't get in a recording studio or on global tours. The gift of motherhood was something that Mary pined for in a way that Les couldn't He had two children already from his past marriage. He had been there, done that. Mary hadn't. She was beyond ready to step off the stage and into a new phase of her life. Mary gave birth to the couple's first child in November of 1954, one month early. She was a five-pound bundle of joy with a handful of respiratory complications. But she never left the hospital. Their daughter died four days after she was born. Mary was asleep when her daughter passed. She learned the tragic news through a friend who had already heard about it on television. The loss sucked the sunshine from Mary's life overnight. Nothing was ever the same. Mary herself wasn't the same. After this trip to Europe, her relationship with Les was never the same. The music in America was never the same either. A sonic shift swept across the United States while the couple crossed country lines in early 1955. America was divided by new anti-segregation legislation 
and the ruthless anti-communist fanaticism of Joe McCarthy's congressional hearings. The radio bursts with radical rhythms to accompany a radical political climate. New acts like Bill Haley and his comments were considered cutting edge, rebellious, something for the kids to pump their fists to as the post-war optimism of their parents' generation crumbled around them. The hip-swinging perversion of Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Bo Diddley, and Little Richard loomed on the horizon. In the context of modern genres like punk, grunge, and metal, the most popular songs of this era might not seem so extreme. But when the roots of rock and roll started sprouting, they rocked acts like Les Paul and Mary Ford right out of business. The duo's trip overseas was just enough time for new trends to edge out the simple, toe-tapping charm of Les and Mary's music. Upon their return to America, the couple was greeted by a new music industry with new needs. Their music wasn't one of them. In July of 1955, the couple churned out their final top 10 hit, a song called Hummingbird that peaked at number seven on the Billboard charts. It was all downhill from there, both in the studio and at their home. In the span of just a few years, Les and Mary went from one of the highest paid musical acts in the country to wholesome has-beens at the bottom of the heap. That was just fine with Mary. Her exhaustion compounded with her grief throughout her 30s. Let it deteriorate for all she cared. She was deteriorating already, just like Liz said she would. He'd once told Mary that she could retire from the road once she turned 30. He told her no one would want to see her after age 30. He never honored the boorish expiration date. Instead, Liz did laps around his wife when she could barely stagger across the metaphorical finish line. There were times when Les was exactly what Mary pictured from day one. A man dedicated to his craft, an inventor, an icon. Other days, he was more gruesome than Mary could have ever predicted. An artist consumed by his work, unmoving and unbothered. Mary craved motherhood. Les craved more 20-hour days. Mary couldn't grasp his obsession. They had already buried a child and the peak of their popularity together. Sleepless nights in the studio couldn't resurrect either of those things. Mary knew that. Did her husband? Eventually, Les did give Mary children, an adopted daughter named Colleen and a biological son named Robert. But that was about all he gave her. He didn't afford her adequate rest. He didn't even give her money to replace her threadbare stage clothes to keep up those appearances he was so concerned about. Mary had to give herself something. She gobbled down diet pills, which only worsened her already sullen moods. She kept the liquor flowing. As her body wilted, she contracted hepatitis from the needle she used to administer reducing shots. When Mary was too sick to record on one occasion, Les propped her weak body up with pillows and spoon-fed her. When she swallowed the last gulp of her dinner, Les asked if she felt better. Mary told him yes, 
Good, Les said. Now sing. Another time, Les called to her from their home studio to record a new track called Allegheny Moon. Mary refused to rouse herself from bed. Les tried to motivate her with a threat. She needed to bring that sweet voice downstairs or he'd give the song to Patty Page, one of Mary's direct competitors on the charts. Mary didn't give a damn. You do that, she retorted. Les was his usual ornery self, Mary wrote in a letter to her parents in 1961, following a visit from her sister Carol. I was miserable the whole time, and still am for that matter. I just don't understand him at all. The man Mary once defended as the greatest guitarist of all time was now an enigma to her. A stranger, just like the man she mistook for a gardener over ten years ago. Maybe the devil was in the theater, just like her mama said. But maybe he was in the recording studio, too. Mary Ford left without warning. She didn't pack her bags. She abandoned her belongings, scattered around the couple's East Coast home. She left behind her floundering music career. She left behind some of the best memories of her life. And she left behind Les. Mary flew home to her family in California on June 19, 1963. She filed for divorce less than a month later. She knew it was all over. There was nothing left for her with her ex-husband and ex-musical partner. Mary took shelter at her sister's home while she and Les battled out an embittered 14-month divorce case. Without her own home, Mary looked for comfort in the usual places, liquor and music. Her connection with the bottle lasted longer than her connection with the stage. She tried to rekindle her career by performing alongside her brother, Bob Summers. But it was no use. Bob felt like a Les Paul stand-in, a feeling Bob couldn't abide. The curtain came down on Mary Ford when she was barely 40 years old. In 1965, she settled down with the new husband, Don Hatfield, who stayed with her until her death, which arrived in her early 50s. Mary passed away in 1977 after eight weeks in a diabetic coma. Her third marriage had been a happy one, and Don took care of her, but her body never recovered from her alcoholism. It likely never recovered from a demanding life with less either. As the music industry revved up to receive hard rock with open arms in the 1960s and 70s, Les Paul found himself with a devout new fan base. Maybe kids didn't know his music, but they knew his name. It was the same name they saw at the top of the Gibson guitars that their own heroes whammed on. In the 1940s and 50s, Les Paul was just a regular star. Now he was a rock star. Guitar geeks and heavy rockers clamored over him well into his 90s, which was painfully ironic, considering his quip about no one wanting to see Mary past age 30. But this isn't about Les Paul. This is about Mary Ford, a woman who captivated audiences as a triple threat, who kept up with the chaos of fame until it chewed her up, who evolved from gospel music to country twang 
to the pinnacle of pre-Beatles pop music, and who never once let a man's talent outpace her own. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Victoria Wazilak. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahini. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spreaker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.